out, nobody on. The playoff to Murphy. Left-hand batter, strike three called to the knees and right down the middle of the plate. But down, Murphy. Some games go on for a long time. This one's still going on in my mind. Welcome to episode 23 of the Autobot Podcast. My name is Justin Viber, and as always, I'm joined by Chad Young and Niv Shaw. You can find me on Twitter at Justin Viber. Niv, why don't you, you want to share your, your... Yeah, if you guys ever need to find me, I can be found on the community forums, community.autonew.com, and you can tweet at Autonew if you ever have any questions about any of these. And you can find me on Twitter at Chad Young. You can also find my... Sometimes brilliant, sometimes not so brilliant writings at Pitcher List. And hopefully by the next time we record, I'll be ready to announce another place that I'll be uh, posting some Ooh. content. So, but for now, Twitter and Pitcher List will have to do. Chad has to expand his writing opportunities because we won't indulge him with some of the stuff <laughs> that, he to, that he wants to discuss. So. <laughs> We can't have oh, a we can't have a whole episode for Dom Smith, Chad. I know you want to. But we really is, can't. I've only been a pitcher list for like a month. I've only written like three articles. One of them is about Dom Smith. I went in real deep detail about him, and I just want to go write another one about him. I just like it's, <laughs> I have more to say. On tonight's episode, we're we're sort of going to do a little bit of a hybrid. It's mostly going to be uh, question and answers. We solicited some questions on Twitter and on the Auto News Slack for things for us to discuss. A lot of them are are very much going to be themed around keeper deadline decisions and pre-keeper deadline trade strategy. So that's kind of the general topic of what we're going to cover tonight. Before we get into all that, though, I wanted to do a quick follow-up while we were getting all these tweets uh, about the Q&As for tonight's episode. We also got a tweet from at J-E-R-M-U-R-N, Jermurn, with a follow-up on last episode that we were having a discussion about Altuve and Correa and how disappointing they were. And and he reached out to us and tweeted us with the postseason stats, specifically Woba for Altuve and Correa. So I just want to touch on that real quick. So in the regular season, Altuve had a 278 weighted on base. On the in the postseason, however, he had a 508. And then I went ahead and figured out what that total would be if you combined the two weighted by plate appearances, obviously. Then if you added his postseason performance to his 2020 regular season, Altuve's adjusted seasonal line would then be a 329 weighted on base, which is still bad, which is still way below expectations for, for him going into the year, even at a depressed expectation because of the, the scandal with the bad Astros. though. That's a strong word there, right? Because 329 takes, I mean, so 278 is, is bad. Well, well, yeah, yeah. 278 329 is, is, is getting really close to league average. Right. And, and I think the, the next thing I've got coming up at pitcher list is about, about guys who had slow starts this year and how we would think about them differently if they didn't have that slow start, especially with no spring training, stuff like that. But I, I think Altuve is a good example of a case where if he had a 329 this year instead of a 278, the storyline about him would be would be different going into the offseason. It would still be a down year. It still wouldn't be what we expected from him. Yes. But the difference between, oh, you know, he posted a 329. He was more like a league average bat. It was a down year, but like... This year was weird. Maybe he'll bounce back. And he had a 278 and was like, if he <laughs> were Jose Altuve, he would have been DFA'd. Is, is a very different 
conversation. I, I agree with that, but at the same time, even if you, you know, you're going to give him credit for that 329 weighted on base, that would be 12th amongst qualified second basemen. So you're talking about maybe an eight, nine, ten dollar second baseman for for Audenew for points. I mean, yeah, that's still serviceable, but it's not at all what anybody expected when they had him on their roster last year, probably by fifteen, twenty dollars still, right? I mean, he was a thirty plus dollar player pretty much everywhere. So yes, it makes it much better. But the other issue I think too is that he's still I mean, he he actually he did hit for a little bit of power in the postseason. He had three fifty four ISO in that 60 plate appearance sample size and which is much better so that probably would have brought his iso pretty close to what he's now projected to be for 2021 the other one that that i wanted to touch on was correa as well similar situation during the season he was a 308 weighted on base postseason for the astros he was a 497 so then the combined adjusted weighted on base for the for the entire season including the postseason was 346 which is pretty good i mean especially at shortstop that again it's it's still way under expectations for correa last year but i feel like his 346 was closer to what managers would have expected correa to perform for them than altuve's 329 would have been because i think there was a little bit of pessimism with correa with with some of the injury issues and things like that so yeah i wonder if it's just a question of 2020 was so weird that we're just desperate for more data and more sample. You know, in a regular season, in a regular baseball season, if we saw a, a, a player play great and then have a bad week in the playoffs, it wouldn't really, like, that's not something that necessarily goes into your projection set or the way you think about the player going forward. But I think maybe in 2020 it does a little bit. And I think it's a little bit of what Chad said about slow starts and having all the caveats we've repeated over and over again about the beginning of the seasons and how there wasn't spring training and people just sort of got thrown into it. And I think there's also just value in one, one of the funny things I think Chad mentioned on Twitter. Normally, we wouldn't care about 60 plate appearances, but that's like a substantial percentage of our plate appearances for 2020 for right. these players. So it's just something worth considering. I, I do think, you know, I, like that was definitely a blind spot when we were talking about that stuff last week. So I appreciate the note. Like that was a really good call out. And and it's, and it just adds a little some a little bit of additional a context little context, too. yeah, and right, and and we're talking about like their postseason plate appearances were in each of their cases was about twenty five to thirty percent of their twenty twenty full season right plate appearances. So it's not yes, it's like you said, it's yes, it's only sixty plate appearances. Normally, you wouldn't care, but it does add extra information that is probably useful to inform us going forward. So right, and and just fundamentally, like. It, it's sort of an open question on if you want to use that data in on a normal year, but I think in 2020, it, it makes this most the most sense it's maybe ever made yeah, to use that kind of data. Take whatever you get. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. The first question, the first actual question we have for this episode is is by that same Twitter user, Jeremyrn. He asked, and I don't want to trigger Niv too much because I think we kind of talked about this. Uh, Ooh, I'm ready to go. <laughs> prior to the recording his question was what is our advice for auto new managers that are in leagues that voted to forego salary increases and or arbitration so real quick before we get into our, our responses to that there were many auto new leagues that because this was a short pandemic season that there were leagues that decided they didn't want to have the normal arbitration process they didn't even maybe necessarily want the normal plus two dollar 
increase that all major league players would get. So they sort of had a house rule in their leagues to undo all that or to everybody agreed to skip arbitration. So that's the context behind the, this question. So I'll, I'll let Niv start and then I'll follow up anything that I feel like uh, he didn't get to. Mine's going to be, I'm going to say it real quick. And Justin, I was going to let you actually go into the details about this. I really hope that what we discuss right now will convince you that you should not do this going forward. I know 2020 was a weird year and everyone's a little afraid, especially in like March and April. Like we had no idea. And I mean, basically even in the middle of July and, and early August, we didn't really know if the season was going to complete and, you know, everything's been crazy. So I don't want to discount that, but there is a ton of value in, even if there wasn't an entire season in allowing minimally inflation and maybe even arbitration to occur and that's really because of the economic system right and there are there's always going to be new surplus targets new players that are coming up that will become the next superstars and there will always be players that need to be priced out of where they are currently in order for leagues to progress correctly going forward if you have if you've never had any inflation and any arbitration like you can think about what kind of players like the first guy who drafted trout who has trout for five dollars his entire career like it breaks a league right and it makes it un yeah. it makes it not fun to play it makes it hard to come back to year over year and i know that's an extreme example but and i know that nece that necessarily that did not necessarily happen this last year though i imagine there's some fernando tatises out there that got to dodge arbitration and inflation for a year that like, what do you do? How do you compete against that for another year? That's another lost year of trying to compete against that team, in a sense, because of how much surplus that team has now. Justin, I'll let you take it from there, because I think you know, you have a better feel for how to describe this stuff, I think. Yeah, and I, and I think, to piggyback on you a little bit, the, the first thing I would say is that, in general, leagues that have done this, it's it's benefiting the, the stronger teams in those leagues, because they're not, they already have sort of more of the expensive stars. Those Those stars are going to be worth are going to be more likely capped because inflation in these leagues is going to be up. That's the bottom line. In leagues where there was no arbitration and there were no salary increases at all, inflation is going to be higher than it otherwise would have been, which means that you, in general, should be more likely to keep those higher price stars that were maybe close to that, keep cut line, because now inflation is higher, they're going to be more difficult to replace at auction. And their price is going to be, you know, there's going to be an inflated price for those players if they happen to be at auction. And obviously, as, as Niv already mentioned, any surplus assets in the league, they didn't get any market correction at all, which is which is part of what uh, salary the arbitration system serves a purpose of doing is bringing some of them not not always up to a hundred percent, but a little bit, you know, and and it's sort of a, a, a democratic process to apply a little bit to to most, and, you know to every team and the teams and the players with the most surplus, like you need to start that process right, and we've talked about that in yeah. the past. So it's like you said, it's not going to be 100% on day one, but you, you got to start chipping away, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think in general, it leagues in this situation, like I said, the better teams benefited from from that decision, from not doing that process as it would normally happen. So yeah, I mean, I would say the advice is expect that, that everything's going to cost way more than you think it is at auction because all those surplus assets were kept. Like surplus is created every year and 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 based on basically players overperforming or breaking out or rookies debuting and, and being valuable before auto new managers expected them to. And it feels like in any, any league that was in this situation, they created all that surplus, 
but then they never chipped away at it. And then any of these overpriced contracts that, that people had in, on their team, well, they can still cut them. So everyone's going to cut the, cut the guys that are clear cuts and then everybody else is going to be kept and it's just going to drive so much scarcity is the other thing that's going to happen, which is going to, which has a hand in hand impact with, with inflation I, at the auction. I so, actually just, I think the scarcity is the bigger issue here. Cause I think if there were no, no increases in salary and no, no arbitration in, in a league that I drafted last year, everyone I drafted, especially after a 60 game season where samples are small and I'm, I'm sticking to my priors in a lot of cases, I left the draft with guys I was happy paying that price for at draft last year, and I'm probably still happy right, with you... it. And so I think there's going to be I, – yeah. I'm curious to see how it plays out in some of these leagues because I think there's also a chance you're going to see people keep 35, 36 guys as opposed to the 20 to 30 that teams usually keep because the only players they're going to cut are going to be players who they regret having bought at the auction last year or players who had such a bad year this year that their value has meaningfully changed. And because it was such a short season, the number of players that applies to, like Christian Yelich had a well-regarded down season. Cody Bellinger had a, a well-known down season. And yet when I talk to people about their market value, their market value is like 2020 literally never happened. And I'm yep. not even sure that's yep. wrong. But what that means is all those expensive guys, an expensive Yelich might have you know, had a down year, gone up a couple bucks, maybe got hit with a couple bucks of arbitration anyways, and all of a sudden maybe as a cut, now he's not. And, and so I think all of these teams are going to be like, you know what, I'm totally fine just running back what I had because I was fine with it last year and nothing's changed. Right, and the only difference is that we have, we do have more information. Like it's not, I know we want to pretend 2020 didn't happen, but we do have more information. We know more about about especially the players that got good like you can make an argument for a lot of them so so it's, yeah. it's just tough and even even beyond the like a performance changes situations have changed since then right, right? so you know we, you have that additional information somebody doesn't have a job in, anymore somebody now is the closer where they weren't this time last year you know that information is is now actionable and you don't have to pay any extra because he didn't get hit with any arb so, I mean, and, and, and I agree with Niv. I, I would not have, none of my leagues that I am in did this. And if, if it had been something that had been discussed, I would have said, I'm not, I'm not for it. I'm, I, I'm, I would vote against doing that. I wouldn't leave a league if somebody, if, if the league as a whole decided to do it. But I was pretty strongly in the camp of, let's just play it out like normal. Yeah, it means you might have to throw some players back in the pool a little quicker than you thought because now... We didn't get a normal minor league season. We didn't get necessarily as many debuts as we would have with a full 162 game season and, and, and a corresponding minor league season. But so be it. Everybody's in the same boat there. And I feel like not doing arbitration and salary increases, it helped the good teams more than it, than I would want them to be helped. It, it artificially gave them a boost. They don't, they don't need, I want there to be a little bit of parity in the league in, in, in all the leagues that I'm in. Yeah, the bottom line, I guess, uh, like Justin said, like expect, expect players to cost more, and expect there to be like I think Chad's also on point. Like expect there to be fewer players available. It's certainly not league breaking. Like you're not gonna after 2021, you're gonna be right back in in this situation. You'll be fine. Corrections will happen, and and your inflation will go back to like its sort of normal steady rate. But yeah, it might just take ex- make just expect it take a couple of years to get to that point, right? I mean, right. 
Just expect it to you be know. expensive next couple of years. I think that's yep. that's what you should expect. Yep. The auction draft especially, let's be clear. Right, right, right. Um, okay, the next question is related to the last one, basically. W Mosser 6 on Slack wanted us to talk about inflation, specifically before the auction when making keep cut decisions, and then also the correction that inflation would have during an auction. And then he, he mentioned scarcity as well, which we kind of alluded to on the last topic. But basically, real quick, I, I'm going to sort of uh, spread the gospel of inflation <laughs> as I see it. Now, for me, auction inflation is very simple. When you, I shouldn't say very simple, but it's it's the concept is static. When you have keepers that are more valuable than their salaries, at auction, you have more money to spend as a league than there is talent to buy. So a player who would normally be $10 in a first-year league, if there's a 20% inflation because there's so much extra value, surplus value kept, then that player is going to be $12 on average. Again, those things can change depending on league-specific dynamics and things like positional scarcity. But in general, it's just a simple math problem. If there's more money to spend than there is value of players to buy, then that means those players are going to cost more. Well, to to add a little bit to that, Justin, just to help sort of illustrate a little better, right? In the end of a first-year league, you've drafted a team, you've spent $400, something around there, and you should have roughly $400 of value, right? Maybe you, you beat the odds a little bit, maybe you lost a little bit, but in general, the average team will have $400 of value leaving that first-year draft. Full season plays out. At the end of that season, half of your guys are worth more than they were before, Half are worth less than they were before because of what they performed like, because of changes in situation, because they retired. And inevitably what happens is if you have, if you keep the 20 guys who are worth more or yeah, or who are worth more and you cut the 20 guys who are worth less, you've now got, let's say, $250 of players you've kept because their, their prices went up, but you've got $300 in value that you've taken off the table. And so that's where that extra money comes in, because now you've got if every team does that, then every team has spent two hundred and fifty dollars and has one hundred and fifty left to spend. But every team has taken three hundred dollars of value off the table. So they only get to buy another hundred dollars at the auction. And so that's the, that's the math right. that, that makes that play out. That results in every team sitting there and saying, I'm only going to get to buy one hundred dollars worth of stuff. And I have one hundred and fifty dollars burning a hole in my pocket. So I'm just going to pay 150 bucks for that $100 worth of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and so for there's two parts. So there's auction inflation, which is driven by the actual keepers that were capped based on either the dollar values on the surplus calculator or your own personal dollar values. It doesn't matter. Whatever dollar values you're choosing to use, you will, you will likely see that there's inflation in your league. Then the implication for that at the auction or when I'm prepping for an auction is I'm adjusting my max bid based on that. If, if normally I would only want to go $10, like I said, the same situation I, I alluded to before. If normally I would only go $10 or $20, let's say $20 on a player. If I think there's 30% inflation in that league, my max bid is now 26, which is $6 more, which is six is 30% of $20. And, and that's how I make those adjustments on a league by league basis based on the inflation from the actual keepers that were kept based on my dollar values or whatever dollar values you want to use. And that's why the surplus calculator was created in the first place, by the way, was to calculate at a league level inflation and which teams seem to have the strongest keepers based on that inflation number in the dynamics of the league. Before the keeper deadline, 
what I try to do is I try to anticipate or guess what that inflation number is going to be. I don't know exactly who everybody's going to keep, but I have a sense of, well, you know, $25 Fernando Tatis. Well, he's definitely kept and he's a strong surplus asset. And I use the surplus calculator to sort of give me an estimate of what inflation is going to be. If I think that the inflation is going to be 20%, then I will adjust the keeper decisions that I make similar to how I adjust the prices for my players that I want to bid on at auction. I'm adjusting the price of the players in my mind that I'm willing to keep them for. So that $20 outfielder that if I think there's going to be 30% inflation, I own him, you know, my, he's on my roster for $22, but I think he's only worth 20. I'm not automatically cutting him if I think that there's 30% inflation because really his adjusted value would be $26. So I, I have not real surplus, but I have adjusted surplus based on inflation. Well, this starts to Um, then get to the other part of what, what Bill was asking about with scarcity and what happens to inflation during the draft, right? Because if you have high inflation in your league and team and the, the managers in that league recognize that and therefore keep more players, you that that in theory drives the inflation down, but it creates a, a, a scarcity of talent, right? If everybody keeps the top starting pitchers because they expect inflation to be high and nobody gets cut, then and no no starting pitchers get cut or no aces get cut, let's say all of a sudden you're like, you know, Strasburg, who people are concerned about his health, and so they cut him, get paid like aces because they're the only ones left to spend that money on. And so you create this scarcity, which then what I find is inflation is not evenly distributed across players, right? So if you have 20% inflation in your league, it is not that your $50 guys become 60 and your $10 guys become 12. What I actually find is your $50 guys become 65, and your $10 guys might actually stay closer to 10 because scarcity interacts with that inflation and causes people to say, if I'm going to get, you know, if Garrett Cole gets cut in your league and somebody needs an ace, they're going to pay whatever they need to pay to get that ace because there may not be another one for them to get. And so I find that it, that that scarcity and inflation interact with each other in such a way that you end up with inflation overrepresented on your, your studs. And, and then also on popular sleepers, I'll say. Right, those guys who are five dollar players, but everybody's in on them this year. Everyone believes that this guy's a five dollar player who could pop for ten, twelve, fifteen dollars worth of value. Those guys end up going for that ten, twelve, or fifteen dollars because people have the inflation to spend. And that ten dollar player who's worth ten dollars, who maybe should be inflated up to twelve or thirteen dollars, ends up going for sometimes even less than ten, but but close to their value. That that's what I see happening as auctions play out. And I think some of that scarcity, it's a it's a it's really the same effect, but it's a different way to think about it. It's, it's less scarcity and more in a first year auction. If you're, if you're looking to bid on the, the best pitcher on your board or the second best pitcher on your board, you know that the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth are there. So the next best available option that you have isn't that much worse than the one that's up for bid right now. But in a league where it's a returning league in a league, especially with a lot of inflation and there's, there's not a lot of players in the pool if the fifth best pitcher is on the board, the next best pitcher on the board might be the 40th best pitcher or, you know, some yeah, really real... drastically incrementally worse player. And that's what, you know, everybody wants the fifth best pitcher, the 40th best pitcher. And eh, there's a lot more tepid response at that point. So and then that, that's basically the same thing as scarcity, but it's it's sort of it has to do with what's your next best available option. And, and in returning leagues with a lot of inflation, 
sometimes there's very little. Yeah, this is where, when I was mentioning sleepers before, this is where I get myself into trouble in leagues, is I look at there and I go, okay, there's this number five pitcher out there, and then there's five guys between 40 and 50. And those five guys between 40 and 50, there's one who I think is undervalued. And so forget it. I'm not going to weigh overpay for the number five pitcher in the game. I'm going to wait on the number 43 pitcher. The number 43 pitcher I actually think is the number 15 pitcher, and I'm going to go get him. And all it takes is one other manager in your league to be focused on that same guy as their backup option for that guy to get really inflated too. And so what I end up finding is if I get too – if I get too focused on, well, it doesn't matter if I miss a number five because this guy is a good backup option over here, I get myself into trouble <laughs> because, it all, like I said, it just takes one other, one other manager feeling the same way. Sometimes there isn't another manager who feels that way, and so you get lucky. More often than not, there is. I think this is I think that's going to be the theme of this episode, what you just said. Like, your plans at the auction draft are just just waiting to be ruined by somebody else in your league. And, you know, the stuff you guys are talking about is totally on point where, you know, we in, in League One, I think we've, we probably, we've probably experienced this the most since we've been playing it for a few more years. But there have definitely been years where six people are gunning for the same pitcher and somebody walks away having spent $10 more than anybody thought the player would go for. And then, and then, and then nobody has a plan. Nobody knows what to do next. And you end up with like very weird expensive players that that you're like how did i end up with a 22 dollar like this or that and you're like well the auction draft right and i think you know when when we talk about and there's a lot of questions that are sort of all around the keeper deadline i think probably should move on to the next one but when we talk about this stuff like i've said it before like it's just a tough thing to to put too much faith that your auction plan is going to go so well that you will like that you'll come out of it clean. And so like, I I would just caution against that generally. And I think this is one of the big reasons why, and we're going to get into some other reasons. why. I think we're going to have to come back with a auction prep conversation sometime next month, but it's, uh, it's that old, old Mike Tyson quote. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and you're going to get punched in the mouth. So be ready. (laughs) Repeatedly. It's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so our next question, again, these are all sort of flowing in, in, in related ways. This was from at carp underscore assassin on Twitter. We had an argument about whether that meant that he was a carp that was an assassin or if he was an assassin that only targets carp. That's not really relevant <laughs> to what we're talking about, but we were laughing at the name. His question was, or he, his or hers, I, I shouldn't make any presumptions here, what to do with an overpriced star, an example being Yelich or Bragman, how much over his market value do you keep him? Do you cut him with the hope to reset his value and redraft? Do you trade him? And my answer to this is I keep him based on, like my my adjustment in making this decision is based on what I think inflation is going to be and, and how far that overprice really is. If Again, if I'm in a league and I think there's going to be 30% inflation and I'm using the surplus calculator to inform that and I'm also using... I've done, I've written articles in the past about relative inflation by league year in Audenew. It's not hard and fast. It's not like you can look at that article and say, well, fourth year leagues have 25% inflation. So my fourth year league has 25% inflation. No, but in aggregate, it'll give you sort of an anchoring point to think about what, you know, the, the median might be across all those leagues of that similar uh, age. 
So I'll use that to inform. I'll use the surplus calculator estimate of inflation. And then I'll also think about like, is this a league with a lot of sharks? Well, inflation is probably going to be higher because everybody's going to be making better decisions. Is this a league with a lot of people I don't know? And maybe they're all just kind of having fun and it's a little looser. Then maybe I don't think inflation is going to be as high. It'll, I'll, I'll knock 5% off of it and lower it by 5% because I think it's going to be a little less sweaty, if you will. So really my answer, it's boring, but it's basically, what do I think inflation is going to be? What do I think that player's value is? Once I do an adjustment based on that, if the player is, is adjusted value is higher than a salary, then I'm probably so, keeping him. If it's not, maybe I'll so think I'm gonna, about I'm going to call but... you out a little bit, Justin, because I think that's a cop-out answer. And here's the reason I think that's a cop-out answer. What, you, what you've basically done is said, I keep overpriced players if I don't think they're overpriced. Because, because, I think this is but an important, it actually is an important definition. I'm not meaning to pick on you with it, but it is an important definition that overpriced doesn't mean more than they would go for in a year one auction. It doesn't mean more than their, their production is going to value. It has to be based on after inflation, after everything else, what do you think this guy is worth? And when you, when you get to that, that sort of conversation, to me, if the question is, what do you do with an overpriced star? That has to be something like, I think Yelich is a $45 player. I think inflation in my league is going to be 20%, which makes him a $54 player. And I have him at 58, right? That's where I think you get into difficult decisions and, and this sort of tough question of, do I, what do I do? Well, you kind of... well, and, and, and you're, you're very, you're very hard and fast. At that. I think for me, the challenge is and, and... that that $45 value I put on his production and the 20% inflation I'm expecting, there are big error bars on that. And so yeah. I, for me, when it comes to an overpriced star, and so again, again, overpriced in this case for me has to be above the inflated market price that I expect them to go for at auction. I'm asking myself, how far above that are they? Are they so far above it that I really believe they're going to go for five, six, ten dollars $10 less at auction than I'm paying them? If yes, then I'm going to cut them. If no, if I'm more like, yeah, they're over, but they're certainly within that sort of margin of error and they could go for this much or even more, then it comes back to the scarcity question for me, which is, okay, it's, you know, we're talking about Yelich. I've got six other outfielders I'm really happy with. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about how my outfield looks. I'm willing to throw him back, even if I'm hoping to buy him, because I'm willing to take that risk to save a few bucks. And if I don't, I don't, and I'll live with it. Whereas my, my offense is thin. I don't know where I'm going to get production from. And yes, I think right. if your team if your team build is requiring you to right. make that choice. I think there's an, I think there's actually the I think what, what what Justin and Chad said is what a smart person would say about how to mark, price somebody. But when you ask me, my answer is very simple. Put them on your trade block. Put them on your trade block if you get if you get three teams nibbling, is there a package that's interesting? If you get five teams nibbling, he's not overpriced. Right. So like you have to see you, you can you have the ability to gain this information. And so I would put them on your trade. I, I would put them on the trade block until the 31st. You don't have to cut anyone until the 31st. You cut them any time during the 31st and you can feel good that you can either go get them back, like you said uh, in your question, or you can know that at least if you cut them, nobody was willing to give up assets to get them at that price. Right. And. and I, I think your your argument there really cuts to the core here and, and is really the best argument of, of the ones that we've made because all of these things are so league specific, right. right? Like I'm talking about it in terms of inflation, but beyond that is also just 
how are the managers I, in your I, league making decisions? I feel like and who do they like and who don't they like? I feel like the inflation argument is a is, that Chad and Justin you both made. I think it's a really good one if you manage multiple teams or if you're thinking about it sort of abstractly across leagues. But if you're playing in one league, you, you have to play within the dynamics of those players, right? Like we're in League One. Chad can attest to this right now. There is no Yankee that is overpriced in League One. There are very few Indians players that are overpriced in League One. That is a league dynamic situation. We got an owner who loves the Yankees. We got three guys from Cleveland. Those guys, they're going to get more ARP. They're going to get bid up in auction, and yep. and you can still trade for them. And you know, you're going to look at the prices and you'll be like, "How did you get a seventy dollar Frankie Lindor?" And it's like, "Well, League One, man, I don't know what to tell you. You got three kids who went to high school in Cleveland." So when you think about stuff like that, like the best thing to do is to gauge, to gauge what your league is willing to do. Put guys on the trade block. That basically emails the whole league. And if you and I just made a trade yeah, this week that I actually think is a really good illustration of this, we I traded my forty-five dollar Anthony Rendon for Niv's twenty-one dollar nineteen dollar nineteen. Yeah, 20, nineteen. We'll get to twenty-one in a minute. Nineteen dollar Max Kepler. Niv had put Kepler on the block a while ago. I had put Rendon on the block a while ago. I'd had a couple conversations about third baseman, and and the feedback I was getting was, eh, that seems a kind of a high price for him. I was torn on what to do because I did not think it was a high price for him. He's been so consistently good. But I also had an inexpensive Eugenio Suarez on my team, and I didn't need two third basemen. Niv's got Kepler, who... I think after inflation is probably a $21, $22 kind of guy. But my sense is, Niv, that you weren't getting a lot of bites on him. Correct. Yeah, I mean, no. I mean, I know. And that's a thing, that, right? That's totally right. Like, we were able to find each other after, like, having those guys on our block for a couple weeks. And that, and that, that happens. So you want to get the guys on your block as soon as possible. But I wasn't getting bites on the Kepler, and you weren't getting anything interesting on Rendon. And then we had like a 10 minute Slack conversation and the deal came together. Yeah. And it was, and it was just a case where I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that the other thing that makes talking about an overpriced star difficult is everyone's price on a guy is different. Everybody has different expectations on how they calculate value, what numbers they look at, what they're thinking about, what matters to them. And so when you've got a guy like a $19 Kepler, you need to find the one person in your league who looks at his 2020 and goes, no, I think his 2019 is more real. I think he's worth more than 20 bucks. There may, and that game, that guy may not exist in your league, may, may but not if they exist, do, right. you've got to find Or there might or be there five might be of them. There might be. Right. right. And so like, and so that's, again, that speaks to, okay, if I have a $19 Kepler, I get no, no nibbles on them. I'm throwing them back. I get five people nibbling on them. Well, now I have to think about if I'm going to keep him because he could be a $27 player in auction and like that has real value in the season to trade in season, right? So you have to, you have like all these different dynamics. And I think the best way, like just to stick on this question, because again, we're touching on something that I think is going to come up again, which is this Rendon Kepler trade. But we're talking about Carp Assassin's question specifically. You got to put him on the trade block. You got to figure out what overpriced actually means, right? And I think that's what it comes down to. And I just want to, I kind of want to circle back to the way that this question was phrased. I mean, the question was what to do with an overpriced star. So there's already a presumption that this person knows that the player's overpriced. Okay. And then the next part of the question is how much over his market value do you keep him? I know it's, it's, 
robotic, but I don't keep anybody over if I think they're over their market value. Because right. if I mean, the market says he's not worth $50, then he's not worth $50, so you throw him back. Getting attached to certain players or certain situations, I think, in general, is not a great idea, especially yeah, I'll just, I'll just going to throw back out that one caveat I threw out before, which is you don't actually know what his market value is. You're just guessing. And so you, you have to know how confident you are. If you think he's a $40 player and you're paying him 55 that's probably way over. If you think he's 50 and you're paying him 53, you have to decide how how accurate you are and you have to and that's where to me then scarcity on your team, team structure, stuff like that starts to come into play is okay, am I willing to assume that he's actually maybe a standard deviation above what I think he is because otherwise I'm I'm missing out. Yeah, I I I think that's right. I think I'm willing to go probably 10% over for certainty. But that, and that's sort of, Justin, I think you're probably more right than I am about this answer. But that's, uh, again, like going back to the thing I said in the last question about the theme of the auction draft and its chaos. There is value to that certainty. You have to decide what it's worth to you. And I think, you know, Chad's on point. You, you, no one really knows what the market price is for any of these players. It's so specific and to the league dynamic. So put them on the trade block, see what you get. You don't have to make a decision until the 31st. And, you know, I, I think you can go over price if there is like a certainty thing. But I think that certainty value comes out of their scarcity. This guy really fits my needs. I really need an ace. And this is the only ace that's going to be available this year. But then are you really over market price? No. Right. You, the, the well, you, and and would, the, would the question be phrased an overpriced star? Like, I just feel like there's some qualified right. language there that makes it seem like they already know they probably need to cut that. <laughs> that's right. That's fair enough. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, that's, I think that's, a, that's a fair the point, point Justin. you're making, Justin, and I think this is, a, this is a good point, is it's not that I'm making a decision I'm going to keep an overpriced star. It's I'm making a decision that I thought this guy was overpriced, but upon further reflection, he's not. I thought he was a $50 player who I was paying 53 but as I look at what's going on in the league and I look at what my team looks like, I realize he's actually worth 54 or 55 to me. And, that, and maybe that's yeah, a better way to put it. And 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 if and if someone's asking this question or thinking of this question, and the question is phrased as, "Should I keep this player who's only forty dollars on the surplus calculator, and I have him for forty three dollars?" That's a different conversation, right? Because that that's one dollar value. You have to believe that dollar value. You have to not. You're not accounting for inflation at all at that point. So that's a different conversation. If that was the way this question was phrased, then I would say, yeah, there's all this other context you need to apply. But if you're already using the language of overpriced and over his market. Well, you know, it only takes one person to create a market and you could be that person. So <laughs> the ultimate cop out is if you're willing to pay. And, 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 and to be fair, everybody, when they're, when they're bidding on players at an auction, auctions are, those players go to the team who is willing to pay the most, right? So there's always somebody who's the highest. Maybe in this case it is you, and you decide it's worth it to keep it because, as Niv and Chad, you know, said, is is you want that certainty, or you think there's going to be scarcity. So, all right. So that question was related to, what do you do if you have that overpriced star on your roster? Uh, the next question we have is from M Mod on Slack, and his question is similar but slightly different, where it has to do with that player being on another team and how do you what do you, what decisions do you make um, when trading for them? So his question specifically was. Say you want to trade for somebody in the offseason, but you think they might be a cut candidate based on salary. Is there any approach you have to that besides seeing what happens on deadline day? So basically, instead of having that player on your team and you're trying to make a keep cut decision, you like that player. They're on another team, but you think they might be cut because you do think that the price 
is close to that line. I'll let you guys talk because I think you guys have a, like a little bit of a, a case. Study yeah, I mean to, the Rendon Kepler trade that we just discussed. Just to, to recap it, it's a straight player for player swap. Chad had a forty-five dollar Rendon. I had a nineteen dollar Kepler. We swapped them just a couple days ago, and I think both those players fit Ahmad's question, right? I think. They both could have been cut candidates for their respective teams. I think they both fit the other team's structure better than they fit the team they were on. And I think there's also that league dynamic thing where probably a lot of people in League One could have sensed. I've had Kepler on my team for a little while. There's like a thing where you get sort of frustrated with the player that you've had on your roster for a while if they're not meeting the expectations you want or... Or if they are, or if like you have these high expectations for them or whatever. So when you look at that stuff, I think, you know, I think for me and, and you know, it played out in this trade, I think certainty and, and, you know, it actually played out in another trade in which I traded away a $43 Garrett Cole. I think that team that I traded the Cole to, and I think in this case, Chad Rendon and Kepler, that certainty that we acquired there is worth maybe under overestimating the price at auction by a dollar or two. I don't think we're making $10 mistakes here, right? I don't think these are like huge differences in salary from where they go in auction to where they went now. But I think if there is a 40, if $45 Rendon is a little bit more than he would have gone in auction, I think that certainty is worth it. That That's that's my thought I, I on think that. from my end, because I did see Kepler go on the block a little while ago, I do think he is a good value at $19. I did think he was borderline and I wasn't sure what Niv was going to do. For me, there's a little bit of like a game theory aspect here, which is if I inquire, I, I, I'm going to... I'm going to find out what Niv thinks, right? If I if I suddenly just reach out and say like, hey, what about Kepler? You've got him on your block. Niv now knows I'm interested in Kepler. We talked in the last thing about when you think about your overpriced stars, if you get a bunch of inquiries about them, then maybe they're not overpriced. So I run the risk of talking Niv into keeping his guy by trying to inquire on a trade. And so I, I tend to prefer to let people make the first move, right? And so, and a guy like Kepler, I'd rather see Niv put him on the block I didn't reach out right away in part because I was busy with other stuff, but also because I was sort of waiting to see if there'd be any movement with him. And then Niv happened to reach out to me about him and it made for an easy, an easy conversation. But I'd rather sort of wait to see that person. Like, I don't want to reach out to them about a guy who's not on their trade block and say that because they could not be like, I don't know why they're not on their trade block. And I don't want to sort of push them to keep someone they weren't going to keep. Instead, I like, like I said, I like to wait. And if I'm going to reach out like after the guys in the block, I try not to be too focused on that player. So had I reached out to Niv about Kepler, I probably wouldn't have reached out and said, hey, what's the deal with Kepler? I probably would have said, hey, there's some guys in your block I'm interested in. I would have named two or three guys. Kepler would have been one of them. Once we get far enough along in conversations, I might then be more clear that, like, look, Kepler's my target here. He's the guy I think I'm most interested in. But I like to start with, I don't want to just throw that out at the beginning because I want an opportunity to try to find out is Niv thinking he's going to trade Kepler because he thinks Kepler is super valuable and wants to get a huge return for him? Or is he trying to trade Kepler because he's ready to move on from Kepler? And so that, that to me, if I see a guy in another team that I think is borderline keep cut and I want to acquire them via trade, I, I try to slow play it a little bit. I think the, other, the last thing I'll say on this real quick is that from the perspective of the team that is cutting that player, if they don't have him on the trade block, they're, like, they're making a mistake, right? So they really should be putting that player on their trade block because if they're thinking about cutting them, like they want to get some return. So, you know, I, I would just take a lot of people, like I think Chad is right to 
to examine the trade block, but I, I would just, I mean, use the trade block. If somebody is on the trade block that you think is, well, maybe you're flowing that just to get anything back. Well, you know what? What 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 nonsense can you send them that will just give you that certainty, you know? And I think that certainty is ultimately worth it. And in, in our case, I don't think it was nonsense, right? We weren't throwing just nothing assets back on these borderline players. We were put, we I think we put both added value to our teams by doing that. Okay, I think we're gonna we're gonna rapid fire here with a couple more, at least two, maybe three questions that we have left here. The first one is from at Dylan Crane on Twitter. Uh, the question is: Every league is different, but what's your preferred strategy for current major league free agents that are reasonably likely to sign? For his example, was Brad Hand. I, for me, I I don't change too much. Um, unless I have some reason to believe that the player may not sign or may sign overseas. Thinking about Puig last year, I, I was burned in a couple of leagues where I had him on my roster and I thought he'd get a job and then he didn't. So it doesn't, I, my strategy doesn't change too much, but at the same time, whenever someone's in that situation, they're currently a free agent, you have to understand that there's a lot higher volatility with that player. The new team that they go to, it could be a big boost to their value or it could depress their value quite a bit. So maybe on average, in aggregate, their value is about the same, but your 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 front and your tail are going to be uh, much wider as far as the, the yeah. uh, And I think to that there, end, so. I try to figure out what I think that range is for a player. So Hand is an example, I think. He is either going to be an eighth inning guy or a ninth inning guy. He's not going to sign somewhere where all of a sudden he's going to be a middle reliever who gets no holds. Like, that's just, that's not the path he's headed down. And then I adjust my values down a little bit, right? I'm not going to pay for him as a closer if I don't know for sure he's a closer. I'll pay for him as an eighth inning guy with some upside. There's some free agents out there that I think are, are in a similar situation where it's a different case. So Marcus Simeon, he's going to be a starter somewhere. I don't know if he'll be a second baseman, a shortstop, third base. Like I don't know what people do with him, but he's going to have a full-time job somewhere. He's too good not to. And so I'm willing to assume he'll have that full-time job and pay as if he will. Jurex and Profar, who also had a good year last year and I think has been playing pretty well and is an interesting guy, he could be a utility guy. He could be a starting second baseman. He could be a third base. Like, I don't know what to expect. And so if I'm going to acquire Profar, I'm going to I'm going to angled down quite a bit and how much I'm willing to spend to get him because I need to be prepared for the fact that he may end up as the, you know, fifth infielder on the Mets or something. If I'm going after Simeon, I'm assuming he's, he's going to be Boston second baseman. He'll be back in Oakland at shortstop. I, I don't know, but he's going to be starting somewhere and I'm willing to pay for that. Yeah. My answer to that, I, I think that's, that's all super fair. I think uh, my answer is that we have 17 days until the keeper deadline and that's usually within two weeks of pitchers and catchers, or like a little bit less, a little bit more than two weeks from pitchers and catchers. And, you know, I, I think most free agents sign by that time. So I wouldn't be too panicky today. You know, we're recording this on the 14th, so I wouldn't be too panicky today. As you get closer to it, I think like the, the thought process Justin and Chad called out is right. But I, I just would think like, and I guess I'll, I'll say from the person who gets to define the deadlines for new. I think if we start seeing free agents go further and further into February, there's probably a room to actually adjust the keeper deadline as a result. Like, I think that's that's a no-brainer. Usually the business got done in December and January, right? And now to be, we're To be clear, Dave, you're suggesting there's room to make that change sometime in the future. Sometime in the, the deep the future. The deadline in two weeks like, is the deadline in two weeks. I don't want anyone to be is like, weeks. oh, maybe I can hold on to this guy and... No, 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 no. Deadline two weeks is deadline two weeks. But I think, you know, we'll see how the new CBA comes out. And then 
we'll see if it accelerates business at all. But also, I think, you know, there's usually only a handful of guys that you have to worry about this for. So I wouldn't overcorrect. I wouldn't get too worried about it at this point in the year. In a couple of weeks, you know, I think Chad and Justin have good answers. Okay, our next question was from Slack. Five Tooler asked, given multiple six-man rotations and likely inning limits throughout Major League Baseball, how is that going to affect auto new pitching prices? I would say, I think this is, it's a tough question. I, I think there's some assumptions built into it, but I would say if all that's true, if we see a lot of six-man rotations, I think it is a given that we're probably going to see more innings limits than we normally would. I might pay a little bit more for the durable vets. We sort of talked about that last year as well with the short season that I was maybe more willing to go the extra dollar for the durable veteran starting pitchings, starting pitchers. And I might also be willing to mix and match a bit more on the back end, um, trying to find the guys that I think have a lot of skill, but maybe uh, their fourth, fifth, or sixth starters, their their roles not as they're not as solidly in the rotation as they as they would normally, or as I think that they could be. So. I, I, it's a hard question. I, I will say that it's not an easy question to answer, but in general, I might go an extra dollar for, for the durable guys and then I'm gonna be I'm going to be a little end. contrarian on the durable guys and say I'm going to go that extra dollar on the durable guys if their team has made a statement that they're not worried about the innings limit and that team is likely to be a contender. And ideally a contender who's not like running away with their division. Because I think you're going to find some durable vets. I'll give you an example here is uh, Max Scherzer. Right, guy you would think of as a durable vet, throws lots of innings, should be reliable. I don't think the Nats are likely to actually be in the race late in the season. And I think the possibility that they skip some starts here and there, avoid overtaxing him, try to set themselves up better for next year, I think that possibility is high. And so I'm going to be a little cautious on on durable vets, unless I really see like, you know, if a team says, look, if, if the net, you know, the Nats come out and say like, look, we have no concerns about Scherzer. There's no innings limit. He's going to be fine. We might be more cautious with some of our other guys. That's pretty interesting. But otherwise I, I'm expecting everyone to be a little bit more cautious than they normally would be. And I think especially teams that aren't competing are just going to take, are, are going to be cautious. They're going to take it easy. They're not going to, they're not going to overtax those arms. That's so I'm I'm a little bit more I think I'm going to be trying to be more diversified in my pitching to, to give myself some protection. I also am anticipating not so many six man rotations as I'm expecting more Dodger like shenanigans where teams have seven pitchers who all take turns on the IL with a tired elbow or something like that. And and Dodger Dodger like shenanigans <laughs> is a good it's a good band name. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. I think I, I think we're a little bit away from fully embracing bullpen days and six-man rotations. I think certain teams do that, but I think that is indicative of their staffs more than it's indicative of how they would want to do it. Like if they had starting pitching, they would use it. So I think we're just a little bit away from that being too much of an impact. I do think there are probably, you know, I wrote on our notes, like if you didn't care about the fifth guy before, you probably don't, you probably still don't because they're just going to pitch less. But I think the flip side of that is that there might be some back end of the rotation guys that get a little bit more play and get to throw a few more innings than they would normally in like a, than like the classic swing roll or whatever, where you're in the bullpen and you're just there for spot starts. So I think there is maybe some value to find there, but I think generally, like, I don't think we're, I don't think we're on the cusp of six-man rotations quite yet. I also, the one other thing I'll throw out there before we move on is I would look at what players' situations are in terms of 
how long they're going to be with their current team. And the example I'll give is is Charlie Morton, who as a he's a veteran, he has his injury histories, but when he's healthy, he pitches. He goes out there every five days. You can sort of rely on him when he's healthy to do that. The Braves will have no reason to go easy with him, and he will have no reason to take it easy. He's probably done. This is his last contract, most likely, anyways. And so I think in cases like that, you're going to see teams be more willing to say, like, look, we think he's going to be fine anyways. We're not that worried about it, and we're going to let him go. Whereas, again, using the Braves, a bunch of their young starting pitchers, they're going to be more cautious with those guys. They need those guys to be good for the next three, four, five years. And so... I think there's a bunch of factors that I would look at in determining, is this the type of solid, reliable veteran I want to pay for? And it's not just what have they done in the past. It's what what do they need to do in the future? Is their team going to be competing? What statements have their team made? Those all factor in. All right. Our last question was from Twitter at nothing but a G King. He's also on Slack. That's shout out to Jeff. He's a wolf. Um, (laughs) His question was, how do you do post-mortems on your performances year to year? And for 2020 specifically, how do you use previous seasons to build for the next year? Nib, why don't we start with you? I think you had. Some. Yeah, I, I know how my post-mortem was. I won my league. So, you know, <laughs> can I interrupt you real quick? Please. We had we had a reviewing our 2020 season episode that I think got lost in the can. I think we had some editing issues or something. <laughs> I forget what it was, but we didn't end up releasing it. And we we had a whole part about league <laughs> league one was won by Niv this year so let's just let's hype that up a little yeah, bit that's I right mean, Niv that's right won league one. i won league one that's that, to be fair and, and to be clear <laughs> all right all right all right i'm, I'm happy for you you're not, but i'm not in league one so <laughs> that is the first time i've won league one since i started doing auto new as a full-time job so i am extremely thrilled with that so that postmortem was easy but i think the most important question and this, again, goes back to the Rendon Kepler stuff, to the auction draft. It's like part of the whole theme of what we've been talking about, really. I tend to do two-year plans. So I sort of think, where is my team now? And where do I want it to be at the end of next season? And so the Rendon Kepler trade is a good example of me changing my plan in the middle about what my team would sort of look like and what I was trying to accomplish in terms of like sort of team shape is the best way to say it for me in my head. Where like... What is my balance of stars to scrubs? What is my balance of prospects to major league players? What is my hitting to pitching balance? You know, everybody has a way of thinking about that stuff in their head. I try to do a two-year plan. So that gives you some leeway to say, where was I in 2020? Where was I in 2019? And not put too much weight in any of that. Because it's really hard to know, especially if you don't have something very easy to say, like, I was basically the day one to the final day of the season leader in league one if you don't have something easy like that to to say you you really don't want to i don't i don't think you want to weigh too much on any given year even if it's even if it's not 2020 which was weird i don't think you want to i think you want to think like what is my plan what am i trying to make my team look like and what what happens when it looks like that what in my head happens when i actually execute that so i always have like a little bit of a two-year window to accomplish those things and all my teams. I'm not necessarily sure that everyone thinks that way, but that is as the person who has been playing auto new, probably the longest of anyone other than Chad over there. That is absolutely the way that we talked about this at the very beginning is like, this is a way you know, we want it. We're not, this isn't a redraft game. It's not a redraft league. It's, it's a hundred percent 
you are able to have continuity. You don't have full continuity, and that's why a two-year plan makes more sense than, say, a five-year plan. But you should have, I think, having a couple years window there is, is like an important way to think about it. And then that allows you to like looking backwards to say like, am I moving in the direction I need to be I'm moving? Let me use an example from my, my old job that I think is, is really relevant here, which is I worked at Amazon for a long time and we would often do three-year plans, different in the business world and the baseball world, whatever. we do three-year plans, but you would go back and do them again, like every six months. And every six months, whatever you did six months ago was probably wrong and you were going to do something different. And you were going to, you were going to, you didn't come at it from, this is my three-year plan. That's totally How am right. I adjust it? You came at it from, here's where I am today. So what does my three-year plan look like going forward? That, that's, that's totally right. That's totally right too. I, I should have said it like that because that's a really good point. It's not, you are not even up, updating your priors. You are looking at your current situation and saying, what is, where do I want to be in two years on this? And for me, like I had a I had a plan that started in 2019 with a lot of future value, a lot of keeping expensive players specifically to trade them midseason, but waiting long enough midseason in 2019 to get the future value that I needed, that I thought I needed, and then saying in 2020 I'm going to execute on this. I'm going to have three roster spots and $150. I'm going to need two players, and I'm going to have a ton of assets to trade in the middle of the season. And, and that does not always work, but it worked this time. And so, but every step of the way, you have to look at where you are right then. And you, because if you beat yourself up on messing something up, you're not, you're not moving forward, right? You're not, I think there's, there's, there's one area where I do what I would consider more of a postmortem. That's looking at sort of my, my bold predictions, the players I was strongest on one way or the other, I do like to go back and say, like, what did I miss on this guy? Or what did I get right about this guy, right? Like, what was it that I saw? And I talk about Dominic Smith all the time. I'm going to talk about him again. I've been high on him for two years. It's worked out really well for me. But the important thing to take from that... We were this close, no, not gonna happen. We were this never, close. Never going to have a full episode without <laughs> me mentioning Dominic Smith. But I, I want to go back and look at, like, okay, what did I see? And what I saw with him... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give away some information here. What I saw with him was what I wrote... And I wrote about this in Picture List was a, was a stance change. And I believed in it. I thought it was legit. I thought it meant that things were real. I saw the same thing with Will Myers this off this last season. Will Myers had a much better year this year, and if you go back and look, he changed his stance, and, and there's some rationale for why he did that. Joey Votto made a, tra- a stance change mid-year this past season. So those are cases where I now want to go back. I want to look at what those changes were because I've got a postmortem that tells me I made this call. This call was right. Where else can I make similar calls? The same thing I want to, same thing I want to do the opposite, right? Where did I get something really wrong? And why did I think that was a good idea? And let's make sure I don't make that same same mistake again, right? I was super high on Travis Shaw because I was like, oh, it was one down year. The guy's got a track record. He's going to bounce back. There's something I missed there. And I actually haven't gone back to do that, that postmortem on Shaw yet. But I want to take a look at that and make sure that I don't look at some player this offseason and say, it was just one down year. I think he's going to bounce back. I see the same things in him I saw in Travis Shaw. Well, as soon as I say that, it's like, oh, maybe that wasn't a great idea. What, you know, why did I get that wrong? So I don't really do postmortems on my team. I do postmortems on sort of individual players and make sure I don't make the same mistakes again. With my team, I do exactly what Niv did, which is I think I tend to think more like 18 months out, maybe as much as 24 months out. But I look at that and I'm just where I am now. Forget where I was. Forget where I thought I would be. This is where I am. Where do I want to be and how do I get there? Yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, my process is, ver- is mostly the same. I think 
The one thing I will say is that you do have to be careful when you're doing a postmortem. Like, let's say you had a, a team that performed better than you expected. Try not to to identify why that might have been and then assume that that those factors are true. That sometimes your team does better than you expected just because of some flukes. So I that's the only thing I would say. And I, I'm like a downer in all these things. Like, I just regressed my whole life at this point. But don't put too much weight into why one team did poorly, one team did better than you expected. Just Try you just say to you're be critical about your whole life. <laughs> yes. Yeah, whoa. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure what to do with that. This podcast changed its well, uh, tone it, 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 In the sense that, that, you know, that that's the lesson with everything is regress everything to a mean. <laughs> and the idea here being don't think that, well, my, my, this team performed well because I focused on these types of players. And so if I do it again next year, I'm going to have the same success. It can be very difficult to really know why things went well or why they didn't go. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but just be mindful of the fact that we're not always the best at identifying what's real and what's not real and just is variance. Right. So that's all. That's right. Makes sense. Okay. I think we have we have done all of the questions we were given. I did not think we were going to get to them all tonight, so I'm proud of us. We I'm not sure what the next topic is going to be, but probably within a few weeks we're going to start releasing positional preview series. So look for that probably around the beginning of February. Uh, the next couple episodes are kind of up in the air, but we will we will give you some sort of entertaining content, I'm sure. <laughs> so thank you to everybody who takes the time to listen, and good night. Thanks, thanks.